Hi, this is Cutie Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 2021. Be there. Great rheumatologists like us go to great meetings like this. Our case today is enteropathic arthritis. Is it the Crohn's or is it the arthritis? So we have a 35-year-old man who's had Crohn's disease for better part of 12 years. It's been difficult to control. About six, seven years ago, he started getting mostly peripheral arthritis, but then more and more back arthritis. Turns out he's HLA-B27 positive. He's got peripheral synovitis. Um, and everything's going wrong. He's been tried on almost everything. He's been on a multiple attempts at TNF inhibitors. He's been on background steroids, background use of um, mesalamine, sulfazalazine, um, oral DMARD-like medicines. He's currently on azathioprine and used to kinemab because he has failed all the TNF inhibitors and vetalizumab. Um, and, uh, and he's really not doing very well. So the question is, now that he's not doing well, how is a rheumatologist to be involved here? I think there's a very simple approach to this, even though this is horribly complex. The bottom line comes from a story during my uh, residency. I went and did a rotation with the famous Dr. Thomas Metzger at the University of Pittsburgh. And while we were doing our daily rounds, we went and saw a patient, an inpatient, with ankylosing spondylitis and Crohn's disease. He was admitted because he was writhing in pain and he was out of control. His Crohn's disease was perfectly under control. And what I learned from that is while Crohn's patients can get arthritis and spondylitis, it is the peripheral arthritis that parallels the activity of the, uh, of the, of the gut disease. So as his Crohn's goes, so will his peripheral arthritis, hands, knees, and feet, etc., toes, fingers, asymmetric oligoarthritis or symmetric polyarthritis, whatever. So meaning that if you cut out his gut for horrible colitis, his arthritis will go away. On the other hand, if he's B27 and he's part of the 20% or so of, of Crohn's patients who, who have spondylitis because of B27, There'll be no effect of disease control in the gut on his spondylitis. They have to be treated separately. So in this particular gentleman who's doing poorly right now on Stellara, good for gut, good for skin. He doesn't have skin. So-so um, on joints and, um, and azathioprine, presumably good for both. What is he complaining of? Well, his joints are active, mostly peripheral not axial. Um, he has a few swollen joints, but his gut is out of control. He's still having bloody diarrhea and not doing well. So the bottom line is he needs to have whatever's necessary to control his disease. So maybe he needs steroids right now to get him acutely under control. When he's been given steroids in the past, guess what? His peripheral arthritis gets better. But is it because we gave him peripheral uh, steroids or because we controlled his gut disease with steroids? That's a really important consideration here. So they are running out of, of treatment options here. Um, and uh, it's possible he may do better 
on ustekinumab with the addition of maybe a drug like cyclosporin or tacrolimus. Those haven't been tried yet. Maybe he needs to be on leflunamide, which hasn't been tried in him at all. He did not tolerate methotrexate very well. Uh, he could get tofacitinib, but as you know, tofacitinib has been studied and has been approved for use in ulcerative colitis, not in Crohn's disease. There are some who believe you shouldn't give Crohn's disease jack inhibitors. A man this complex, this difficult, I might if push comes to shove. Again, but I want you to take away from this course, this case is that it is the peripheral arthritis that runs in parallel and is connected to the enteritis or the uncontrolled colitis. Control one, you got the other. For Room Now Live, I'm Jack Cush. Talk to you next. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Great rheumatologists like us go to great meetings like this. You can register at RoomNow.Live. Um, a unique thing about this Room Now Live meeting is that, you know, uh, it, it's going to be streaming, as you know, as all of ours have been since 2019. And we're going to have um, pre-learns and post-learns, meaning that when you sign up, you're going to get a learning assignment before the lecture from each of our speakers so that during this, the program, our speaker is going to focus on cases and decision making and sort of building on what they've taught you in the pre-learn assignments. And then after the meeting, you're going to get a post-learning assignment or at least materials, from our speakers as well. It's sort of a unique way. We get you before, during, and after so as to uh, enrich the quality of the engagement. That's Room Now Live. Our case today, rhabdo or not, 26-year-old gal with a history of dermatomyositis. Seen her a few times. Um, haven't actually seen her in the clinic. It's all been during COVID. Had two prior visits where I was introduced to the patient. She was on medicine. I saw her again after her labs were done. You know, she had a CPK that was elevated, seven or eight, 900, something like that, um, and was taking methotrexate, and um, that's about it. Uh, I said, let's do this and that, and we'll come back. And this time she comes back, and her labs show that she has a CPK of 22,000. Her aldolase is normal at 4.3. She has no symptoms. She has no symptoms. She's not. She's a little weak, but it only shows up when she's trying to get out of the car or out of a stoop position. Otherwise, you know, she can comb her hair and climb stairs, and she's not short of breath, and her skin is not abnormal in any way. She says she feels fine. She says she's taking her medicine. Wait, maybe she missed methotrexate last week, but really she's doing fine. But the CPK is 22,000. I'm worried. We admit her to the hospital. Could this be rhabdo or not? Rhabdomyolysis, as you know, is a complication of uh, inflammatory muscle diseases. Um, it means basically that you have extreme amounts of muscle damage with release of macromolecules from the myocyte, including myoglobin, which when it gets excreted in the urine, turns your urine tea-colored. But all that myoglobin in the urine is bad news for the kidney because it can induce kidney damage and ATN. So um, she did not have myoglobinuria. She did not have T-colored urine. Her renal function is normal. 
Her CK is 22,000. Her Aldelase is normal. Her AST is 600. Actually, her AST is 1,000. Her ALT is 900. Um, and why did this happen? Well, we really don't know. Um, it could be noncompliance. It could be there was an intercurrent problem. When you look at extreme elevations of CPK, um, enough to give you rhabdo, what are the causes? Well, how much is enough to get rhabdo? It's unlikely at levels less than 10,000, but it could occur. When you start looking at 15 and 20,000, rhabdo occurs. When you start looking at more than 20 or 30,000, rhabdo is likely to occur. So luckily, it did not occur in this patient. We got the patient early. We hydrated her, uh, stabilized her, and sent her home. Um, the question is, why, again, does the CPK occur? When you see extreme elevations of CPK, you have to think of a few things. Trauma, crush injuries. Um, I had a case of rhabdo with a CPK of 18,000. Patient was using IV cocaine, was out of his mind on IV cocaine, got rhabdo so bad that he couldn't walk, so he had to roll down the street. That's right, log roll to, mo to mo get mobile, which induced more muscle trauma. He went into rhabdo and really almost lost his kidneys. That was 30 years ago. But uh, trauma. Also, as I just said, cocaine. Bad drugs, especially cocaine, amphetamines, um, heroin, are notorious for causing muscle damage by causing vasculitis and tissue ischemia. So severe tissue anoxia of any cause. Um, it can happen with inflammatory myositis that's not controlled. It is also very likely with other drugs that are known to be myotoxic like statins. It's a very, very low risk, but it does happen with statins and other myotoxic drugs. Uh, and then infections. Infectious myopathies can often cause a lot of damage and lead to s extreme CK elevation with rhabdo risk. Now, what about this case? CK, very, very high, normal aldolase. Actually, that's not uncommon. Doesn't, doesn't change the diagnosis one beat. What about the converse? Extreme elevation of aldolase with a normal CK. That's less common, but also could be myositis and any one of the causes I just sedated. But when you see very high aldolase and normal CK, should you be thinking myositis? No. You should be thinking liver disease because aldolase comes from liver. You could also be thinking... Stills disease and auto-inflammatory disease because that's often the aldolase level comes from extreme um, liver activity seen with the auto-inflammatory syndromes as well. Lastly, um, uh, what do you do about treatment in someone like this? Hydration, um, IV steroids, get control of the situation. Should she be on methotrexate? Yes, but more. She wasn't on enough. So she went to oral split dose, 20, 25 milligrams a week. I added leflunamide, 20 milligrams once a day. I personally like the combination of methotrexate and leflunamide in difficult to manage inflammatory myositis patients. You could use other drugs, including azathioprine, many people use, obviously methotrexate. Uh, and even drugs like cyclosporin, atacrolimus can be helpful here. Biologics, we don't really know of a really good biologic in this situation. Anyway, a really good case. Um, she's doing really well. Um, she's on high-dose steroids. And, and I'm invoking the Ziffism. Dr. Morris Ziff, my, one of my mentors, said acute, uncontrolled, inflammatory, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, 80 milligrams a day of steroids. That's what she's on. But...
dadgummit, where in the world is Waldo's COVID-19 vaccine? I've been getting this question now for weeks. Starting to get into a bit of a frenzy for a lot of our patients, our family members, our friends. Where do I get the vaccine? Did you get the vaccine? Oh my God, I haven't gotten it. I don't know how to get it. What do I do? Where do I go? I was talking to a bunch of my colleagues, rheumatologists, and I said, are you getting this question? And they all threw up their hands and said, yes, we're all being asked. Not one of us know. And that's the story here. We don't know. Meaning we'd like to know. You'd think we should know. I mean, I'm teaching a lot about the coronavirus and how to treat it and whatnot. I think I should know. I mean, I did get my vaccine through my employer at my hospital. Why don't I know where my patients can get it? Well, it's sort of a consequence to how this has been handled. Let's talk about some facts. Operation Warp Speed. Tremendous public-private partnership um, resulted in a, an amazing feat of vaccine development in record time and putting this vaccine on the market starting in late December. Uh, and now it's available. Where is it? But Operation Warp Speed also had the stated goal of uh, greater than 80% of the 330 million Americans being vaccinated by late June. At this rate, hmm, I don't know if we're going to get there. We'll talk about the numbers in a second. Really what we need, I mean, 330 million Americans, that's about 250 million adults over the age of 18. We need to get 200 million vaccinated, at least to get to some version of herd immunity. Or uh, Again, some number north of that would be great. But we still have a tremendous deficit going on here. One of the weaknesses here was the federal government's plan to make the drug, ship the drug, and then leave it up to the states. I'm sorry, the states just don't know what to do. Many states are really good. The health departments have been planning and are well uh, able to, to handle the problem. Many of them have not been able to get the vaccine that they've requested to put it into arms. Many of them don't really have a good plan. If you think the health department in Oklahoma, Arkansas, Maine, New York, Colorado, and Montana are the same in how they're handling this, you're sorely mistaken. Everybody is right now doing this by the seat of their pants, being led by a few. Maybe a new administration with a more central effort for distribution and uh, administration, um, maybe that'll help the problem. Uh, again, it's not been very fair. Um, you know, a lot of young, healthy doctors have been uh, vaccinated, even though they're not frontline healthcare workers. I see a lot of patients. I'm not a frontline healthcare worker, but I do see patients, but I'm not in the trenches of COVID. I got vaccinated, vaccinated on the second day it was available in Dallas. I've received my second vaccine, and, and yet I'm still practicing um, safe health practices with my mask, my goggles, my hand washing, and my distancing. So, you know, we're, we're telling our patients, get on a list. And that's going to be my, one of my recommendations here. Get on the list, either with your healthcare system, your job, your pharmacy, your hospital. You know, it's hard to say what works in your area. When 
us doctors sit around and talk to each other. We don't know where to get it. We tell everybody, listen to the news. The news reporter seems to have the latest scoop on which pharmacy just got a shipment and where it's available. That doesn't quite seem right to me. Probably doesn't seem right to you. The pharmacies are very involved, but at this point, Walgreens, CVS, the rest of them, they haven't got a clue. They are in the early stages of negotiation. They have plans to give it to you when it's given to them, but they're not getting it right now. Pharmacies are getting it in a very sporadic um, and, and, and a, a healthcare need sort of way. You know, so underserved areas are likely to go to a pharmacy rather than to a healthcare system. But generally, the big pharmacies are not getting this. They will at some point, and they will do a bulk of the work. But right now, while they've been in the discussions and and had their CEOs touting, we're going to be involved and we're going to be vaccinating the nursing home people and whatever. I mean, so far, CVS, Walgreens, the rest of them, useless to the rest of us. They need to get the supplies they need to help you get this drug, um, this vaccine. So here are some of the achievements of where we are so far. Um, worldwide, 71 million doses. Remember, you need two doses. That's like cut that number in half. But that's worldwide. In the United States, it's about 24.5 million doses have been given. 6% of the U.S. population has received one shot. 1% of the U.S. population, 1% has received both vaccine shots. Yikes. It's estimated that as much as 50%, 47% of distributed drug has not yet been administered. Now, is that because of holdback for the second um, shot? Partly, but there's still a lot of drug that's going unused. Um, in the VA, the Veterans Administration, they have actually used 56% of their allotted uh, vaccinations, which means 44% has not yet been allocated. Interestingly, the very first phase of vaccination was supposed to go to 21 million healthcare workers and 3 million domiciled nursing home elderly patients. Interestingly, 2.7 million um, elderly people in nursing homes have received the vaccine so far. That's one number I've seen. If that's true, that's fabulous. I know for a fact that, that less than half of the healthcare workers have been vaccinated, and that's hampered by the fact that somewhere between 20 and 40% of healthcare workers refuse to get the vaccine. That's a special kind of stupid. But nonetheless, healthcare workers are supposed to be right at the front line. What about the rest of you? Teachers, people with, who are elderly, people who have medical problems. You know, again, I'm telling most of my patients you're not immunosuppressed. You're not on immunosuppressives, but when it comes time to get the vaccine, jump up and down and say, I'm immunosuppressed, I'm taking immunosuppressives, hoping that you can get the drug sooner. But here's, I think, the big takeaway. The big takeaway is there's a tremendous amount of confusion. There's a tremendous amount of chaos. It's being driven by the media. They've turned the craziness about the weather report now into the craziness about the COVID vaccine. Don't buy into it. You're all going to get vaccinated in due time. Everyone's going to get theirs by March. Some of you by February. If you're older, if you've got multiple medical problems, you'll be getting on lists. For right now, try to get on the list that you can. It's sort of like going to the grocery line with your family. Bobby, you get on that one. Sarah, you get on that one. You know, my husband's going to be on this one. Whichever one's moving faster, we're going to get on. That's, that's what you got to do. And whoever serves you first, congratulations, you win. At this point, you can, you know, calm down, wait, have a mocha latte or cup of tea, read anything but COVID news, turn off the television, you know, read a good book, enjoy yourself, um, you know, police academy, 
you know, they got one, two, three, four episodes of Police Academy. Right there, that's 12 hours that you could kill. Um, so you can wait and calm down, or you can fight and get stressed out and go berserk and say, why not me, why not me, why not me? Again, being hell-bent is not going to make you safer, happier, smarter. If you are hell-bent and determined, my advice is get on lists. Um, if you know there's a place that's giving a vaccine, especially a, ho a hospital healthcare system, you might cruise by there at the end of the day or try to make friends and hope that you can be one of these people who are inadvertently getting vaccinated even though it's not your turn yet. That's happened in a few instances. You know, the state rules vary widely. Some are saying that, you know, the next in line are the 75-year-old, some at 65 years old, sometimes, sometimes at 60 with medical problems. Again, the rules are just crazy nationwide. Be calm, get on a list, be opportunistic if you can. But again, you'll be safe if you continue the safe practices of uh, avoiding congregate settings, bars, stadiums, you know, uh, even outdoor picnics, um, six foot distancing, wear your mask. It really does work. Wash your hands. You're going to be just fine. Uh, and you will get your vaccine. Waldo will get his wherever he is. That's my rant for today. I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Go to RoomNow.live to register for our next great meeting. Bye. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by, you got it, RoomNow Live 2021, March 20, March 21st, streaming live to you at home. Today's case, it's called, I don't know. I saw a case today, a woman with widespread pain, intermittent pains, pains here, pains there, been going on for eight, nine, ten years, and uh, never saw a rheumatologist before, did go to other practitioners with unsatisfactory responses, unsatisfactory interventions, largely untreated, um, and now not doing well and wanting an answer. Okay, I'm your guy. Um, in the end, the answer was, I don't know. Meaning it sounded to me like it could be a soft tissue rheumatism story and it could have been fibromyalgia and it could have been a sleep disorder, but it's missing a lot of key elements, including, um, you know, enough tender points or bad sleep or um, a number of other features that would have cinched the diagnosis. But yet nothing was found. So what do you do when you don't know what really is going on? You can fake it, but the patient's going to know. I always think it's a great idea to start off by saying what you know from this intervention, this evaluation, and maybe even start with, I don't know what you have, but this is what I do know. Or you could start with, what we know from this evaluation today is what you don't have. Sometimes the patient's greatest satisfaction comes from hearing from you, the expert, that they don't have whatever it is they may be worried about. And you need to find out what they may be worried about early on in the course of the evaluation. Are they worried about them having the disease that their grandmother or their aunt had? Or are they worried about that lab test and the PCP who said, eh, you may have lupus, don't worry about it. Lupus? What do you mean lupus? I'm, now I'm worried about it because they looked it up on the internet. 
So telling them what they don't have has great reassurance and great value. And then you can work on the finer details. I think it's important to say what you do know. And I think we often miss the opportunity to say, listen, you've had these complaints for a number of years. If this was a big, bad, ugly disease, cancer, autoimmunity, autoinflammatory syndromes, you've had plenty of opportunity, you and your immune system and your bones and your cartilage, to show the ugly signs of those diseases. And guess what? Here we are today, and none of them are evident. Not evident by the labs, by the x-rays, by the imaging, by your expert exam, your magical fingers, um, and again, the history that they've revealed to you through careful questioning. So in the end, you have to leave the patient satisfied. Sometimes, as I said, telling them what they don't have is satisfactory. And if they are dissatisfied or still puzzled or whatnot, say, listen, all the big, bad, ugly stuff would have jumped off the table today. And I would have diagnosed you with something that you might be worried about. I'm not doing that. And I'm not in a rush to do that because I'm going to see you back. We're going to do an empiric trial of this and that and see how you do. We may or may not get to further investigations. I think the big mistake here is to say, we're going to do a bunch of labs and the labs will help us figure it out. Wrong, 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 wrong. All your diagnoses are clinical, supported by labs. If you have no clue what it is, don't be relying on labs. Again, labs are going to be done for safety or for reassurance, or if you really think they might have a B27-related disease, by all means, go ahead and order a B27. But don't go fishing for an alternative diagnosis to what you don't know based on labs. You're adding to the problem by doing so. Remember all those consults you got for ANAs that mean nothing? Mm, that might could be you in the future if you order too many lab tests. This is what I do when I don't know. But I do know I'm going to Room Now Live March 20 and 21. This is QD Clinic, and this is a tale of two gouts. In one day, I saw two gout patients. One woman, one man. She was 63, he was 45. She's had gout symptoms and has been largely untreated or treated horrifically for the last six years. He has had a 15-year history of mismanagement of his gout. They're both on colchicine and steroids and non-steroidals in varying amounts in the last, let's just say, six months. She has never been on allopurinol, despite having, you know, clear-cut radiographic punched-out erosions from urate deposits and multiple gout attacks. You know, it used to be three a year, and now it's like six a year, and now it's just an attack going on for a month or something something really long. He um, has been on allopurinol um, either 100 or 300 going back and forth because someone's worried about his creatinine of 1.2. So what do we learn from these two cases? Number one. Whoever is managing gout in this world doesn't know crap from tuna fish. My goodness. Gout management by non-rheumatologists. And by the way, rheumatologists don't always do a great job here. But by non-rheumatologists, ER doctors, family doctors, OBGYNs, podiatrists, God knows who's been involved in the care of these two individuals. But they all get, you know, a very generous F. In, in gout management. Yet everyone thinks they know how to manage gout. 
So if you're a non-rheumatologist and listening to this and you're greatly offended by what I've said, good. Good. Come to Dallas and show me how you manage gout and I can poke holes in your management. Again, gout is not easy to manage. If it was, we wouldn't have all this destructive damage being done by gout. 8.1 million Americans with gout and what, less than like 2% are being seen by rheumatologists? That, that isn't right. I certainly would not want a higher number for your mother who has rheumatoid arthritis or for your aunt who has lupus. Why shouldn't your uncle who has, who has gout, chronic gout, be managed by someone who actually studies it, lives it, breathes it, treats it? Everybody else is a part-timer. Second, acute gout management. People, wake up. Colchicine was the drug of the day in the time of Hippocrates. Why would you give a drug where the express goal is diarrhea and abdominal cramping, even if you're using just three pills a day? Wake up. Use non-steroidals. If you can't use non-steroidals, use steroids. It works great. In a, since colchicine became a, a, a very expensive drug, I haven't prescribed colchicine for anyone. Anyone. Not for gout, not for pseudogout, not for FMF. I mean, oh, maybe one of those. But honestly, I don't need colchicine to manage gout. So wake up. Use steroids. Use non-steroidals. Um, that's how you get over acute gout. Lastly, um, allopurinol management. Lord knows what the hell people are thinking when they're doing this. Um, obviously, you start low. You know, 100 milligrams is what I do. I, I give it for a week or two. If they tolerate it, fine. Then they immediately go to 300. And then it's treat to target, meaning you're monitoring and you're making the goal. Get their uric acid below 6. And if they have TOFI, below 5. And if you're not getting there, you escalate the dose. Still, among, even amongst rheumatologists, the number is like 90% of rheumatologists and their patients are on 300 milligrams a day. And I would assume rheumatologists are managing the difficult gout patients, meaning I don't know what happens. Thinking and management seems to cease when you hit 300 milligrams a day. How many people do you have? They're taking 450 or 600 or 800. And there's too much worry about renal function. And people who you use uh, allopurinol in. Yes, you follow their creatinine, but you can safely use high doses, including 600 or even the max 800, in people who have renal insufficiency. You just follow their creatinine. When it seems to be affected, you can cut back on the dose. This is different than colchicine, where you clearly have to be very, very careful about using colchicine and its dosing in people who have creatinines that are approaching two or higher. Allopurinol. Be liberal, keep monitoring, be aggressive. This is how you manage gout. At least that's how I think you should. We'll see you at Room Now Live. It's in March. <laughs>